Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This week we are talking about the Come Follow Me assignment for November 11th through 17th. This is Hebrews 7th through 13th and High Priest of Good Things to Come. And I am so excited, guys, because and High Priest of Good Things to Come is a Jeffrey Holland talk that they reference in this particular assignment for Come Follow Me. And guys, it is literally my favorite talk of all time. So stop whatever you're doing. Stop right now and go find the Jeffrey Holland talk, A High Priest of Good Things to Come. They mention it in the part at the very end of Come Follow Me called Faith Requires Trusting in God's Promises. So go find that. Go read it. I would totally just like clip it and put it here in this episode if I could. But honestly, Bonneville Communications copyright statement kind of terrifies me. So I'm okay like putting other people's music and stuff into my episodes as long as I quote them and give you like where you can go find them. But Bonneville Communications gets a little scary with like the church content and stuff like that from conference. So I don't play with that. So you guys can go and find it for yourselves. Um, I'll probably quote a lot from it though in this particular episode. So just be forewarned of that. So Hebrews 7 through 13. So we got a lot of really good stuff in these particular chapters here. Um, I really liked what the introduction said. It starts out, even faithful saints at times suffer reproaches and afflictions that can shake their confidence. And I was like, yes, that is me. If you remember our last episode, I talked about how I was really, really struggling with changes in my job, changing schools, um, a totally different social climate, a totally different schedule, just the stress that I was under. I mean, I just felt like I was just being crushed, literally, um, physically, emotionally, psychologically. Like, it was just really hard. And so I feel that sentence, that even faithful saints at times suffer reproaches and afflictions. I feel like I'm definitely going through an affliction right now. Um, We'll talk a little bit about more about it in a minute. It says, Paul knew that Jewish converts to Christianity were experiencing serious persecution because of their new faith. To encourage them to stay true to their testimonies, he reminded them of the long tradition of faithful believers from their own history. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, and Moses. A cloud of witnesses, which I love that phrase, that God promises are real and worth waiting for. And how many times when we are going through struggles, do we look back at The testimonies of faithful witnesses in the past. I mean, in the last episode, I talked about Nephi and how Nephi was kind of getting getting me through stuff. And so Paul is doing something very similar here in Hebrews where he's reminding them of scripture stories that they know that will help get them through and help remind them of the promises that their Heavenly Father has made to them. And it continues, This heritage of faith is shared by all those who look unto Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. And you know I love it when we call Jesus Christ the author and finisher of our salvation. I love referring to him as an author. Um, And we're going to talk more about that in a minute, too. All right. So it continues on. 
Because of him, because of Jesus Christ, whenever adversity makes us want to draw back, we can instead draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. For us, as for the ancient saints, Jesus Christ is our high priest of good things to come. Which I think is so important to keep in mind because when we are in the middle of those adversities, when we are in the middle of hard times, it can feel impossible to see that anything good is coming out of it. That is literally where I was several weeks ago. I mean, I'm driving to work one morning and I am literally thinking, this is the thought in my head. I was like, I hope another car crashes into me so I don't have to go to work today. Like that's how bad things had gotten. Not that I was suicidal or anything like that, but I mean, it was just like, I just can't do this. Like I can't keep forcing myself to do something I really, really don't want to do. And so I was having these horrible thoughts and like to the point where I'm like, oh, it's time to start therapy again. It's time to like, you know, kick up the medication doses. I don't know what. And so I turned to my heavenly father instead and, you know, prayer after prayer of just get me through this, give me your grace, help me get through it. And, you know, nothing was really sticking. Like I was getting through it and I was making it, but it was still really, really hard. And it's funny because I find in my life that there will be times where I will pray for like the same thing over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden I kind of switch up the prayer just a little bit and miraculous things start to happen. Just like the wording even of what I'm asking for. And so after reading Hebrews this week and being reminded of all the instances in the past in the Old Testament where God came through for the children of Israel, for, you know, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Moses, the Moses example really got me thinking. I started thinking about the story that we see in Exodus 17, where, you know, Moses is out there with the children of Israel and they're fighting against Amalek and Joshua comes and says, you know, hey, we need to fight him. And Moses is like, go choose people to go out and fight with Amalek. And I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand and I will hold it up. And anytime he held it up, Israel prevailed. But when he put down his hands with the rod of God, then Amalek prevailed. Well, Moses's hands were heavy. This is Exodus 17, 12. And it says, Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone, and they put it under him, and he sat thereon. So, okay, at least he's sitting down now. And then Aaron and Hur stayed up by his hands, the one on one side and the one on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So he had two people kind of holding him up and helping him hold up that rod. Well, I started thinking about that, and that's when my prayers changed, because I was like, okay, Heavenly Father, like, I realize that this particular obstacle that you've placed in my path, or this particular trial that you've placed in my path, that it's not going away. So I'm like, I need an Aaron and a Her to come, like, stand beside me and help me hold this up, because I can't hold it up on my own. Fully expecting, in, you know, my limited range of knowledge, that this would be something where, like, oh, he'd, you know, bless me with an extra measure of his spirit, or, oh, you know, maybe my visiting teachers would show up miraculously, or, you know, there would be someone at work that just kind of swoops in and helps me out, and I was expecting, like, a real live person. Well, since I prayed that prayer... I have felt lifted up. And there's two reasons for this. The first one is because I have been lifted up by people. I don't know who. They're on the other side of the veil. But literally, since I said that prayer, find somebody to help me hold my hands up as I'm bearing this burden. I have felt surrounded by angels every moment of every day that I have gone through this. I mean, I have just felt lifted up. I have felt supported. 
in what I am trying to do and the efforts that I'm making to be able to make my library and my school a better place. And so that was a huge testament to me of exactly what Hebrews is talking about this week, where when we look to the past and we see how God has fulfilled promises to others, we can then see how he fulfills promises in our own lives in ways that we might not ever expect. And so that leads us into the second section here in Come Follow Me, or I guess the first of the main section. We've gone out of the introduction now, we're in the main section. And it's called the Melchizedek Priesthood is the Higher Priesthood. It talks a lot about the Melchizedek priesthood. So first of all, who is Melchizedek and why did we name the priesthood after him and everything like that? Well, there is lots to that. Um, Melchizedek is one of those characters that has lots of like mythology and mysticism kind of associated with him. So when you search him up on the internet, things get very weird very fast. It's one of those situations. So I will just forewarn you. If you are interested in finding out who Melchizedek was, you can look it up, but you know, just go armed because uh, the Jewish tradition especially has a lot of very interesting kind of rabbit trails that you can go down. But for our general purposes, we know that in the New Testament, he's kind of held up as a type of Christ, as someone who came before Christ and kind of modeled him. His name is composed from two different elements. It's actually from the Masoretic Hebrew text that we get that particular word of. Melech meaning king and Sedek meaning righteousness. So we put it together and the particular way that it's conjugated actually means of. So king of righteousness is what Melchizedek's name is. So we don't even know that that was really his name. That may just be a pseudonym that the writers of the Old Testament gave to him. King of righteousness. It may be like a title or something that they gave to him. So Melchizedek was a king in the Old Testament. Obviously, he was a really good guy. Abraham gave him, you know, his tithing. And that's what really kind of what we know about him. Um, I have to think, because, you know, again, once you start getting into the weird stuff, like there's lots of stuff where you're like, oh, is this guy really good? Is he not good? Like, what was what is he doing? Um, I have to think that everything that we know about him that is good is true, because otherwise we would have an entire line of priesthood named after him. So I really do believe he was a type of Christ. He was a forerunner of Christ and that he really was a king of righteousness. And so even that name, king of righteousness, points to Christ. All right. So it asks us, how does Hebrews 7, 1 through 22, what does it help us learn about the Melchizedek priesthood? And it gives us examples from the Joseph Smith translation, in Hebrews 7, 3 and 21. Those who are ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood are made like unto the son of God and are priests forever. Okay, we can find more about that in the gospel topics. You know I love some gospel topics. And the Melchizedek Priesthood talks about how it holds the keys of all the spiritual blessings of the church. It holds the keys to all the ordinances that we partake in that literally help us become forever with our Heavenly Father, that help us become like Him. Hebrews 7.11 says the Levitical priesthood does not offer perfection and was therefore superseded by the Melchizedek priesthood. So we're talking about it was replacing a lesser priesthood. So we know that Melchizedek was the greater priesthood and it's what gives us, you know, the authority in the church. It's what gives the authority to reside and also, again, to preside over those different ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood. And in Hebrews 7.20-21, the Melchizedek priesthood is received through an oath and that's the oath and covenant of the priesthood, which I definitely recommend recommend that you go read that DNC 8, 19 through 44. If you never have before, even if you're a woman and you're like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Oh no. 
Oh no, ladies, because we have learned from like the latest general conferences, we have a lot to do with the priesthood. So you definitely need to go in and read it. You might find yourself very surprised to see some of the things that come out. All right. There are lots of different ordinances associated with the Melchizedek priesthood. And in the gospel topics, it actually says that men in the church must be worthy Melchizedek priesthood holders in order to receive the temple endowment and be sealed to their family for eternity. Which I think is interesting there, too, because men have to have the Melchizedek priesthood to have the temple endowment, whereas women don't have to have the priesthood to have that endowment done. So that was kind of an interesting thought for me. I'm like, why don't we have to have the priesthood do that? I'm like, huh, do we already have something that we're like ordained to? I guess, I don't know, womanhood, motherhood, I don't know, that we don't have to have that extra kind of like whatever the men have to have to have the endowment. I don't know. It was just interesting to think about that. And it says, after that, they have the authority to administer to the sick and give special blessings to family members and others. With the authorization of presiding priesthood leaders, they can bestow the gift of the Holy Ghost and ordain other worthy men to offices in the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods. All right. So those are some of the different ordinances that the Melchizedek priesthood allows you to perform. Come Follow Me asks, what blessings have you received from the Melchizedek priesthood and its associated ordinances? Well, I mean, there's the obvious ones. I've, you know, married in the temple. I've gotten my endowment, those things like that. But (laughs) again, you know, talking about the hard stuff that I've been through recently and changing that prayer and the blessings that came from that. Another prompting that I had from my heavenly father when I was going through kind of like this just really rough patch recently was that I needed to ask my dad for a priesthood blessing. And I pushed it off and pushed it off and pushed it off because I'm like, no, this is silly. I can handle it myself. I just need to stay focused on the scriptures and on my heavenly father. And I need to start reading the book of Mormon and I can handle it myself. I can handle it myself. And I got to the point where I'm like, okay, no, I can't handle this myself. And so I went and I asked my dad for a blessing. And this is how well our Heavenly Father knows us. I had just recorded last week's episode. I hadn't published it yet. I hadn't talked to anybody about the episode. And you know, I'm reading ahead. My dad has no idea what I have been reading, right? And in last week's episode, you know, I made such a big deal about the word author. And again, at the beginning of this episode, I made such a big deal about the word author. And so my dad goes and he gives me this blessing. And one of the first things that comes in this blessing is, Your Heavenly Father is the author of the trials and tribulations that you are going through now. And I was like, what? Like, eyes flew open, and I kind of like, what? Like, the, the fact that he used the word author, like, after I had, like, had a really big emotional attachment to that after last week's episode, to me was just kind of like, okay, this really is from my Heavenly Father. Also interesting, because... I have always been a big believer that our Heavenly Father doesn't necessarily cause trials and tribulations in our life. Sometimes he just lets them happen. But in this particular instance, I was told that my Heavenly Father was authoring these trials and tribulations into my life because of the lessons that I would learn from them. And so two lessons that I've learned so far from these trials and tribulations, I'm now sharing with you guys. I hope that it helps because I was also told I need to share what I learned from these trials with others. So I know I'm being like very just like laying it all out there, but you know, that's my style. That's what I do. I just kind of throw it all out there and y'all just see what sticks. But honest and truly, that 
priesthood blessing that I got from my father, it was full of counsel like that, um, to, you know, stay close to my heavenly father, let these trials humble me, let them show me my weaknesses that I can be strengthened, come to my father and let him walk me through it. And then in time down the road, I will see the benefit of these trials and that others in my life will also benefit from these trials. So that was a great reassurance. It was a great blessing to be able to go to my father so grateful that he is a worthy Melchizedek priesthood holder, that he can give me a blessing of comfort in times when I need comfort, a blessing when I need, you know, health when I'm sick or when I'm unwell, a blessing of healing, because I tried to do it on my own. I tried to pray on my own. I tried to read the scriptures as much as I could on my own, feel the spirit as much as I could on my own. I was trying everything on my own. And it wasn't until I got that little extra oomph of help from that priesthood blessing, that things really began to change and began to turn around. So I truly believe in the power of the priesthood, not only for ordinances like the temple and the sacrament and baptism, those saving, atoning ordinances, but I also fully believe in the power of the priesthood when it comes to blessings and the ability that the priesthood has to definitely affect our lives in real and tangible ways. So that is a huge testimony. And I have to feel that the timing of all of this has to be on purpose. So I hope that that testimony of, you know, the priesthood blessing of finding it so unique to me by just the wording of that, the author thing in there. And also just that my heavenly father was doing this on purpose and the advice that he was giving to me that was so personalized to what I was going through. I hope the testimony of that and the strength of the Melchizedek priesthood through those blessings will help somebody out there. So that's the first part of Come Follow Me. Okay, so next up, the next section in Come Follow Me is perfect for going through and doing a sister frizzle of this episode. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, when we sister frizzle something up, it means we are taking a field trip back in time to learn more about whatever is going on. And in this particular instance, Paul in Hebrews 9 and 10 is talking about the Day of Atonement. And Today, modern Jews call this Yom Kippur. It's the most holy day of their holy calendar. And back in the day that Paul is referring to, it was also the most holy day of the ancient Israelites as well. And they had like this whole tradition that they set up around it. And when I went in first and started reading Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10, like... I kind of got what was going on, but I wasn't really clear on what was going on. So I went in and did some research on Yom Kippur and everything that's associated with it. And you can get really into this and get really in depth because there's like a million little things that they had to follow because y'all law of Moses, right? So there's like a million different little things that they had to follow and do it very strictly to um, enact this ordinance for the Day of Atonement, you know, to take their sins off of them and put it somewhere else because they didn't have Christ yet, right? So to learn a little bit more about what is the Day of Atonement, there's a really good website out there. It's called learnreligions.com, and they have a whole article on the Day of Atonement. It's called Day of Atonement, the Most Solemn of All Bible Feasts as written by Mary Fairchild, and she says, The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, is the most solemn and important holy day of the Jewish calendar. In the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement was the day the high priest made an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. This act of atonement brought reconciliation between the people and God. After the blood sacrifice was carried to the Lord, a goat was released into the wilderness, symbolically carrying away the sins of the people. This scapegoat was never to return. 
So, some fast facts about Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. When the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, the Jewish people could no longer present the required sacrifices on the Day of Atonement as described in the Old Testament, so it came to be observed as a day of repentance, self-denial, charitable works, prayer, and fasting. And so if you go today to any Jew and ask them about Yom Kippur, like they'll tell you it's 25 hours of complete fasting, and not just fasting like we do, but I mean, it's extreme fasting. It's like, you know, no eating, no drinking, no lotion, you don't wear any leather, um, no bathing, no, you know, husband-wife stuff. Like, I mean, they like they avoid all kinds of stuff during this 25-hour period, and they really try and focus their worship on repentance and atoning for their sins of that year. It says, The Day of Atonement was a yearly reminder that all of Israel's daily, weekly, and monthly rituals and offerings were not sufficient to atone for sin. When is Yom Kippur observed? Well, today, Yom Kippur is celebrated on the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Tishri. And just a reminder that the Jewish calendar is different from our Gregorian calendar. The Jewish calendar is a lunisolar calendar. So it's based off the sun and the moon and their various positions. So their holidays change from year to year, the dates that they're on. For instance, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, just happened this past year on October 9th. So we just had Yom Kippur. We just passed that. It always happens sometime around September, October-ish, like sometime in like the early fall. Okay, it always changes depending on the sun and the moon, like their positions in the sky. So a little bit about what actually happened on the Day of the Atonement. It is the only time during the year when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the innermost chamber of the temple or tabernacle. So... Here's the temple and tabernacle situation that you had. And there was like a really good video in Come Follow Me if you go online. There's actually two really good videos. There's a really good video that talks about the Day of Atonement and the parts of the tabernacle. And then there's a really good video that shows you like, like it's it's kind of cheesy to watch with like your kids and teens. I think they, they'd like it. It's about a guy that travels back in time to his younger teenage self. And then he grabs his teenage self and they travel back in time to go back to the Day of Atonement and they get a lamb and they talk about the importance of sacrificing the lamb and you know they go through the whole thing and then they compare that to how are you preparing to serve the sacrament and sacrament meeting you know so it's it's a really good little trip but the video on the tabernacle I think is fascinating and it does a really good job of taking something that seems very foreign and old testamenty and turning it into something that points towards Christ so in the tabernacle you have kind of an outer wall and once you enter into this outer wall, it represents like the celestial kingdom. Like you are coming into a holy space, a sacred space, right? There's like a little fire thing going there. And there's like a little lava where you go and you like wash your hands and stuff. And you cleanse yourself kind of from the outside world. After that, you can go through a curtain and you come into the holy is what they call it. And in the holy, there's a couple of different things. Most notably, there is a candlestick, which is usually a menorah. And then there's like a table, and on the table there's shoe bread. Usually there's 12 little loaves of shoe bread, and then there's wine. Well, obviously, we can see the representation there of, with the candlestick, the light of Christ, the light of God, and then also with the shoe bread and the wine, it's obviously sacrament, right? The renewal of the covenants that you make each year on the Day of Atonement with your God, right? That's kind of what they had going on. That also represented the terrestrial kind of kingdom. 
Then they had the Holy of Holies, and they only entered it once a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And so, of course, this represents more of a celestial kind of sphere, right? And the only person who entered was the high priest. And this is how he, he goes and he does this. And Learn Religion says, On this day, the high priest would remove his official priestly garments, which were like gold and all kinds of like really fancy kind of stuff on them. And he would take all that off. He would bathe, do the ritual bathing. And then he would put on a pure white linen robe to symbolize repentance. Next, he would make a sin offering for himself and the other priests by sacrificing a young bull and a ram for a burnt offering. Then he would enter the Holy of Holies with a pan of glowing coals and an altar of incense. They would fill the entire Holy of Holies with a smoky cloud and the aroma of incense. Then using his fingers, he would sprinkle the blood of the bull on the mercy seat, which is the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and on the floor before the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest would then cast lots between two live goats that had been brought before by the people, and one goat was killed as a sin offering for the nation. Its blood was then added by the high priest to the blood already sprinkled inside the Holy of Holies. Then, with a grand ceremony, the high priest would then place his hands on the head of the live goat, confess the sins of the whole nation before the altar of burnt offering, and finally he would give the live goat to an appointed person who carried it outside the camp and set it free into the wilderness. Symbolically, the scapegoat carries away the sins of the people. After these ceremonies, the high priest would enter the tent of meeting, bathe again, redress in his official garments, Taking the fat of the sin offering, he would present a burnt offering for himself and one for the people, and the remaining flesh of the young bull would be burnt outside the camp. They wouldn't even eat it. Today, the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are days of repentance, when Jews express remorse for their sins through prayers and fasting. Yom Kippur is the final day of judgment when each person's fate is sealed by God for the upcoming year. Jewish tradition tells how God opens the book of life and studies the words, actions, and thoughts of every person whose name he has written there. If a person's good deeds outweigh or outnumber their sinful acts, his or her name will remain inscribed in the book for another year. On Yom Kippur, the ram's horn, the shofar, is blown at the end of evening prayer services for the first time since Rosh Hosanna. And they have five different prayer services during the day on Yom Kippur. And between that, they're reciting psalms all day long. So that's kind of more modern stuff. But we saw kind of the ancient stuff with there with the tabernacle and the temple and the blood and all that stuff like that. That's important for us to know because then when we go into Hebrews 9 and 10, that's what Paul is describing. Hebrews 9, 2, it says, For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein there was a candlestick. You know, we talked about the menorah and the table and the shoe bread, which is called the sanctuary. Okay, so it's kind of the holy. It's that inner space, right? And after that second veil, after you go through the holy, you go to the holies of holies. And in three, it talks about that which is called holiest of all. And that had the golden censer. You know, we talked about the incense, the little coals and the incense. And the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. So they're talking about, you know, the various things that were held within the Ark of the Covenant. You know, they had Moses' tablets in there, Aaron's rod, all that stuff. And in 6, it talks about, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the work of God. And so that's talking about the holy. 
he goes in there, you know, with the candlestick and the shoe bread, that whole area. He does the weekly atonings and things like that, the weekly rituals, I guess, that they had. But into the second went the high priest only once a year, the Holy of the Holies, and not without blood. He only went in for this particular ritual, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet still standing. So, what Paul's saying there in 8 is that this was all leading up to Christ. All of this was leading up to the great day of atonement, the final day of atonement where Christ would declare it is finished. That is what Paul's talking about. He's reminding them of, hey, remember all these years that you guys have been doing this whole atonement thing? Like, that is now all rolled up in this beautiful sacrifice that Christ has created for us. So this was like really intricate ordinances that the Jews were participating in to remind them of the atonement of bringing themselves closer to God. What do we do? And this is what Come Follow Me asks. Think about the ordinances you participate in today. How do these ordinances point you to Jesus Christ? I mean, some of these Jewish ordinances, when you first read about them, you're like, oh, that really seems really, really strange. But then you look down into like what they actually mean and you're like, okay, well, that really does point me towards Christ. Well, so going to church each Sunday and eating a piece of bread and drinking a little tiny cup of water might seem to people who aren't used to it strange. But it leads us back to Jesus Christ. And it's not the actual action, although the action is important. But if I were to just go sit in the church parking lot and eat a piece of bread and drink water, like that does nothing for me, right? It's going in and actually participating in the ordinance where the bread is blessed, the water is blessed, I'm there, I'm there for, you know, it being dedicated to that particular purpose, I'm there taking part in the ordinance of the sacrament, and that's what points me to Christ. That commitment to be there and the commitment to give my sins to Him and to turn all of it over to Him is really what points me towards Christ. And then we also see the same thing happening when we talk about baptism. You know, I think about all the washings that the priests had to do before they went and they did all this stuff. You know, we have a symbolic washing that happens when we are baptized. We're put down in the water and we're brought back out again and our sins are washed away, right? And then we renew that washing each week as we take the sacrament. And then there's even more ordinances that point towards Christ when you get to the temple. I can see a lot of those ordinances pointing towards Christ, but I am so grateful for the sacrament. You guys know I believe so heavily in the sacrament. I love it so much because it does. It's a constant compass in my life that points me towards Jesus Christ every week because it's very easy for me to wander off and get kind of lost in like whatever I've got going on in my world, but the sacrament helps pull me back on course to where I need to be pointed towards Jesus Christ. There are some really awesome videos in this section for Come Follow Me, so I really suggest that you go check them out. Watch them with your family, and they're really educational and really good, so go check them out. All right. Faith requires trusting in God's promises. Oh, this is the part I'm so excited about, guys. Like, you can't see it right now, but I'm making, like, little heart hands. Like, <laughs> my hands are in the shape of a heart because I love this part so much. Um, it says, if someone asked you to define faith, what would you say? And Sister Anne Pinigree of the Relief Society General Presidency drew on language from Hebrews 11 to give this definition. Faith, the spiritual ability to be able to be persuaded of promises that are seen afar off, but that may not be attained in this life is a sure measure of those who truly believe. Faith is a measure of those who truly believe, guys. That's what she just said. And this is the section that brings up Jeffrey R. Holland's talk and High Priest of Good Things to Come. And I think that when it comes to faith, this 
talk is so important to me because I tend to lose faith in good things in the future. Um, Especially when I'm going through hard times, I feel like what I'm seeing at that moment is all that's ever going to be there. Hard times are all I'm ever going to see. And I lose sight a lot of times of the promises that my Father in Heaven has promised me. And one of those promises is, is future blessings. He's promised all of us future blessings. And it can be so hard to hold on to those promises when you are in the middle of just a really bad time. So Jeffrey R. Holland, I told you, we're going to quote this talk like up one side and down the other. Um, So here we go. He starts out, On those days when we have special need of heaven's help, we would do well to remember one of the titles given to the Savior in the epistle of the Hebrews. Speaking of Jesus' more excellent ministry, which, by the way, that always kind of reminds me of Bill and Ted's most excellent adventures, like the more excellent ministry. Okay, aside. Continuing on with Jeffrey R. Holland. And why he is the mediator of a better covenant filled with better promises, this author, presumably the Apostle Paul, tells us that through his mediation and atonement, Christ became an high priest of good things to come. Every one of us has times when we need to know things will get better. Moroni spoke of it in the Book of Mormon as hope for a better world. For emotional health and spiritual stamina, everyone needs to be able to look forward to some respite, to something pleasant, renewing, and hopeful, whether that blessing be near at hand or still some distance ahead. It is enough just to know that we can get there, that however measured or far away, there is the promise of good things to come. Jeffrey R. Holland continues, My declaration is that this is precisely what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us, especially in times of need. There is help. There is happiness. There really is light at the end of the tunnel. It is the light of the world, the bright and morning star, the light that is endless that can never be darkened. It is the very Son of God Himself. It is the return of hope, and Jesus is our Son. To any who may be struggling to see that light and find that hope, I say, hold on, keep trying. God loves you. Things will improve. Christ comes to you in his more excellent ministry with a future of better promises. He is your high priest of good things to come. And then he gives several situations of people who might be holding on to promises. Um, You know, people who are single, people who are single parents, people who have, you know, are homesick missionaries, those who struggle to make ends meet. All these different situations where people just need hope of something good coming in their lives. He says, to all of these and so many more, I say, cling to your faith, hold on to your hope, pray always and be believing. Indeed, as Paul wrote of Abraham, he against all hope believed in hope and staggered not through unbelief. He was strong in faith and was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to perform. Even if you cannot always see that silver lining on your clouds, God can, for he is the very source of the light you seek. He does love you. He knows your fears. He hears your prayers. He is your heavenly father. And surely he matches and with his own tears the tears his children shed. It is not without a recognition of life's tempest, but fully and directly because of them that I testify of God's love and the Savior's power to calm the storm. This is my favorite part, guys, okay? Always remember in the biblical story that he was out there on the water also, that he faced the worst of it right along with the newest and the youngest and the most fearful. Only one who has fought against those ominous waves is justified in telling us as well as the sea to be still. Only one. 
who has taken the full brunt of such adversity could ever be justified in telling us in such times to be of good cheer. Such counsel is not a jaunty pep talk about the power of positive thinking. Though positive thinking is much needed in this world, no, Christ knows better than all the others that the trials of life can be very deep, and we are not shallow people if we struggle with them. No one's eyes were more penetrating than his, and much of what he saw pierced his heart. Surely his ears heard every cry of distress, every sound of want and despair, to a degree far more than we will ever understand. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Indeed, to the laymen in the streets of Judea, Christ's career must have seemed a failure, a tragedy, a good man totally overwhelmed by the evil surrounding him and the misdeeds of others. He was misunderstood or misrepresented, even hated from the beginning. No matter what he said or did, his statements were twisted, his actions suspected, his motives impugned. In the entire history of the world, no one has ever loved so purely or served so selflessly, yet been treated so diabolically for his effort. Yet nothing could break his faith in his father's plan or his father's promises. Even in those darkest hours at Gethsemane and Calvary, he pressed on, continuing to trust in the very God whom he momentarily feared had forsaken him. Because Christ's eyes were unfailingly fixed on the future, he could endure all that was required of him, suffer as no man can except it be unto death. He can look upon the wreckage of individual lives and the promises of ancient Israel lying in ruins around him and still say then and now, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. How could he do this? How can he believe it? Because he knows that for the faithful, things will be made right soon enough. He is a king. He speaks for the crown. He knows what can be promised. He knows the Lord will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. He knows that the Lord is nigh unto them that are of broken heart. He knows the Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. And then he goes on to give like a really good personal conclusion of his own about a story where, um, you know, he went through kind of a hard time with his young family. And he talks about, you know, it's a time where his car broke down and, you know, some things went on. And he says he talks about driving by that spot now, 30 years later, and he sees, you know, himself as a young man kind of walking along that same road. And he says, don't give up, boy, don't you quit. You keep walking, you keep trying. There is help and happiness ahead, a lot of it. You keep your chin up. It will be all right in the end. Trust God and believe in good things to come. And he ends with his testimony where he says, I testify that God lives, that he is our eternal father, that he loves each of us with a love divine. I testify that Jesus Christ is his only begotten son in the flesh, having triumphed in this world as an heir of eternity, a joint heir with God, and now stands on the right hands of his father. I testify that this is their true church and that they sustain us in our hour of need, always will, even if we cannot recognize that intervention. This is the quote that everyone quotes all the time. Some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. Of that, I personally attest. And then he kind of signs off, you know, in the name of kind of thing. But yeah, that's Jeffrey R. Holland's talk that just changes my life. And every time I go through a really hard time, it's the talk I lean back on. There's so much of it I love. 
And every time I read it and I'm struggling with something new, something stands out to me, you know, again and again. But the one part of it that has always stood out to me is where it's talking about Christ on the waters. And it says, you know, only one who has fought against those ominous waves is justified in telling us, as well as the sea, to be still. Only one who has taken the full brunt of such adversity could ever be justified in telling us in such times to be of good cheer. And I love him talking about that imagery of being cast out there on the ocean and feeling lost. Because I have felt that in my life so many times. I felt that recently. I felt that this morning. I mean, you know, um, just that's what I'm living right now. And so I go and I read that and it reminds me that, yeah, I'm feeling that but guess what? So has my Savior. And what I need to do is to let go and be still and let his promises carry me through. So I wanted to end this episode with one of the suggestions that Come Follow Me had. And it's at the very bottom where it says, improve our teaching. Use music to invite the spirit and learn doctrine. The first presidency said, music has boundless powers for moving us towards greater spirituality. Perhaps a song about faith, such as True to the Faith, would supplement a family discussion of Hebrews 11. So I want to end this episode with a song about faith that I really love. And it's called Oceans Where Feet May Fail by Hillsong United. And it goes right along with what Jeffrey R. Holland was talking about. The first couple of lines are, You lead me out upon the waters, the great unknown, where feet may fail. And there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, and my faith will stand. And I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours and you are mine. And so here it is, Oceans Where Feet May Fail by Hillsong United.
right, guys. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, I know it's helped me out. I know reading this week about, you know, coming closer to my Savior and having faith in Him and even just rereading Jeffrey R. Holland's talk was exactly what I needed. So I hope you guys found something that you needed this week out of our Come Follow Me assignment. I love you guys. I hope you have a most excellent week, as Bill and Ted and Jeffrey R. Holland would say. And I will see you guys here next week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.